For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up the way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her path. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. And then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof and will recover my wool and my flax given to her to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. And I will, ca- I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her solemn feasts, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees. Wherefore she has said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Baal, wherein she burned incense to them, And she decked herself with earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers, and forgot me, saith the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope, and she shall sing there. As in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishai, and shalt call me no more Baali. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the earth. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people. And they shall say, Thou art my God. So far the reading of God's holy and infallible word. 
In light of the commemoration and remembering of our Lord's death in the Lord's Supper, we would like to now read the first part of the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper. You can find the form on page 136 in the back of, of your Psalters. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, attend to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Holy Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 29. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup, which when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord, to our comfort, it is above all things necessary, first, rightly to examine ourselves, and secondly, to direct it to that end for which Christ, Christ hath ordained and instituted the same, namely, to his remembrance. Now, the true examination of ourselves consists of these three parts. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them, and to the end that he may abhor himself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that rather than it should go unpunished, he hath punished the same in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with a bitter, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. And secondly, that everyone examine his own heart, whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God, that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of God, of Christ, is imputed and freely given him as his own, yea, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness. And thirdly, that everyone examine in his conscience whether he purposes henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life and to walk uprightly before him, as also whether he hath laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforth to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. All those then who are thus disposed, God will certainly receive in mercy and count them worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. But on the contrary, 
those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. And therefore, we also, according to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, admonish all those who are defiled with the following sins to keep themselves from the table of the Lord and declare to them that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ, such as all idolaters, all those who invoke deceased saints, angels and other creatures, all those who worship images, all enchanters, diviners, charmers, and those who confide in such enchantments, all despisers of God and of his word and of the holy sacraments, all blasphemers, all those who are given to raise discord, sex, and mutiny in church or state, all perjured persons, all those who are disobedient to their parents, superiors, and superiors, all murderers, contentious persons, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, whoremongers, drunkards, thieves, usurers, robbers, gamesters, covetous, and all who lead offensive lies. All these, while they continue in such sins, shall abstain from this meat, which Christ hath ordained only for the faithful, lest their judgment and condemnation be made the heavier. But this is not designed, dearly beloved brethren and sisters in the Lord, to to deject the contrite hearts of the faithful, as if none might come to the supper of the Lord, but those who are without sin. For we do not come to the supper to testify thereby that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves. But on the contrary, considering that we seek our life out of ourselves, in Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that we lie in the midst of death, and therefore, notwithstanding, we feel many infirmities and miseries in ourselves, as namely that we, we have not perfect faith, and that we do not give ourselves to serve God with the zeal that we, as we are bound, but have to daily to strive with the weakness of our faith and the evil lusts of our flesh. Yet, since we are, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, sorry for these weaknesses and earnestly desire, desirous to fight against our unbelief and to live according to all the commandments of God, Therefore, we rest assured that no sin nor infirmity which still remains against our will in us can hinder us from being received of God in mercy and from being made a worthy partaker of this heavenly meat and drink. Dear church family, this morning with in anticipation of the coming Lord's Day, where we have the privilege of remembering the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we are confronted with the following question or questions, particularly from our, our passage. To whom do you belong? Or whose people are you? The Lord in our passage describes a people of saying, you're not my people or you are my people. It can only be one or the other. 
It's a question that we must answer. Do we belong to the people of God or do we not? And we could answer it saying, I do not belong to him. And this can be, we can approach it in a very superficial, indifferent way, thinking this doesn't really matter to me. It's, I, I don't have any care for the question in the first place. Or we could come with a, a careful examination, an honest assessment of ourselves and our relationship to the Lord and and still have to say, I do not belong to him. Or we confess that because of the grace of God, I've been made one of his people. And it's this question that we hope to address this morning so that we're able to answer the question And it's my prayer that we would be able to answer that I am one of the Lord's restored people. The prophecy of Hosea was written to the northern ten tribes. It was written to a people who in many ways had spurned and pushed away the love of God that he had manifested to them again and again and again. As they turned, as they turned to worship other gods, other lovers. And Hosea is being called to go to this people, to go to them with a, a message that on account of their spurning and pushing away the, the love of God and the mercy of the Lord, that they were a people who were without mercy, no mercy. And yet the Lord comes in this, in this beautiful prophecy and says, there is a way back. And God describes this way back for people who had spurned his love, both in words that were coming to them through the prophet Hosea, but through the the very life of Hosea. Hosea's life was to be a picture of what he was preaching to the people of Israel. It was a demonstration that he, the Lord, was one who will search out and he will find adulterating sinners and bring them back into a relationship with him, to be his beloved Because the Lord's love is unfailing and his mercies are steadfast and abounding. But Hosea not only proclaimed this, but he lived it out as a living example in front of his people day by day. He experienced what it was like for the Lord to experience his people spurning him. For the Lord called him, as we read in one, in chapter one, verse two, to take to him a, a, a woman to be his wife. And this woman had the inward tendencies and the desires for illicit relationships with other men who were not her husband. And verses three and four tell us that Hosea went and, and married 
loved Gomer. And she bare him a son, whom Hosea named, was called to name by God, Jezreel, which means God scattered or God sows. But in verses 6 and 8 and in the verses surrounding that, we read that Gomer forsook her husband, took up relationships with other men, and bare children, bare bear another son and a daughter. And yet the Lord comes to Hosea and says, I want you to name these children as well. And Hosea is called to name the first of these two children, the, the daughter, to name her Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy shown. And the, the Lord commenting on that name says, For I will have I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. And then in verse then the son is born, and Hosea is called to name him Lo Ami, which means not my people. And he says at that time, For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Hosea's marriage and the fruit of that marriage were, were to be a, a message to the, to the children of Israel. That just as Gomer had forsaken Israel, or had forsaken Hosea, so Israel had forsaken the Lord her God. And it, become, and it was because of their willful rebellion, because of their spiritual adultery, that they did not deserve mercy and to be called the, the people of God. And yet the Lord in His mercy comes, comes to this wayward people, comes comes to, to Hosea and to the people that he's called to proclaim this message with a message of hope. That there is the possibility of restoration for, for ones like Gomer and for ones like you and I. A message that was to be visualized by Hosea in, in his relationship to Gomer. For in chapter 3, which we're not going to consider, but in chapter 3, the Lord calls Hosea to go back to his, his wife that had left him and was pursuing other, other men and to restore her back into a relationship with him as her husband once more. And it's this message of hope, of restoration for wayward people that we hope to consider this morning from verses 14 through 23 in chapter 2. And in this, in this passage, we see that the people of God, who are by nature a, a scattered people, without mercy and without, uh, separated from God's covenant love, who are in desperate need of His saving grace, the Lord comes to restore such a people back into intimate fellowship with him. But it's only on account of his gracious provision and mercy. And so we hope to consider the following theme, the Lord's restored people. An alert people, 
or a wooed people and a betrothed people. Dear congregation, by nature, we are like Israel. We have committed a spiritual adultery. We have turned from the serving and loving the one true God. And we have served other gods, or or maybe we still are serving other gods. And like Gomer, by nature, we have spurned the love of God that comes to us again and again and again. And we've pursued illicit relationships We spurned the love and the mercy of God who created us in his image, who's who's provided us with so many good gifts in this life. We spurned this great love and we've served other gods who cannot and they will not satisfy us. In Hosea in chapter 2 in the in verses two through five begins to describe the the long term consequences of this kind of life of our sin because of our adultery he, he speaks of us being left exposed, empty, dry and if there if this remains our position, we are a people who are without mercy. Without tender loving kindness, without hope for the future. And then in verses 6 through 13, the Lord describes how He did not just leave these people and let them go and do what they wanted to do, but He was a God who, who came and hedged up their way, we read in, in verses 6 through 8. And as she's living in her sin, he hedged up her way so that she would come to recognize what she was missing and return to her first husband. And in verses 9 through 13, we read how the Lord even removed, began to remove physical blessings of daily life so that she would see her need of the Lord. But she did not return. We read in verse 13, at the end of all this, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. That's you and I by nature. The Lord desires us to come back to him, but by nature we continue, even despite of his providential care and provisions for us, even being brought up in Christian homes and families, even um, having the privilege of reading the word of God, studying the word of God, we can continue to spurn his love. And maybe someone, maybe someone says, well, is there any hope? Is there any possibility of restoration? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. The Lord in his mercy, yes, he hedges up our way. He could bring cross providences across our path to direct us. But we read in our verse that he says, I will allure her. I will allure her. I will bring her back into the wilderness and I will speak comfortably to her. I will allure her. I will woo her. I will persuade her 
This word for allure is translated variously in the, in the Old Testament. It's sometimes translated as allure, entice, persuade. We read it in, 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 in most of the scriptures, it's actually used in a negative sense. For example, in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 10, Solomon warns the Warns his son, my son, if sinners entice, or if sinners allure, or if sinners persuade thee, consent thou not. But in our context, it's used in a, in a positive thing. The idea of alluring, attracting, persuading to something that's good and wholesome and beautiful. And the Lord here comes to sinners and he allures and he, he says, come to me. He attracts them to something that's absolutely glorious. It's kind of like we read in our call to worship from Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come ye to the waters. You who have no money, come by, by wine and milk without money and without price. Or in Isaiah 1 verse 18, the Lord comes to his people and pleads with them. Come now, let's, let's reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be as wool. The Lord comes down into the midst of sinners and, and woos them, attracts them, allures them to himself because he desires and he delights to, to show his mercy to a people who don't deserve mercy. He alerts them from their bondage and their misery. To see him as one who's worthy, who's altogether lovely. And he draws them out of Egypt from under the cruel taskmaster's into the wilderness. This is what the Lord says, I will allure her and I will bring her into the wilderness. For an Israelite to hear these words that he brought and would bring them into the wilderness would bring them back to the Exodus. For the Lord delivered the children of Israel from their bondage in Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, persuaded them to come into the wilderness, to leave their sin and bondage. Being brought into the wilderness spoke of deliverance, spoke of redemption. And so today as the Lord allures through his word, as he woos a people back to himself into a loving relationship, it will and can only be in the context of forgiveness, in the context of redemption. It's in the wilderness that the Lord continued to woo his people and continued to speak into their hearts and lives, continued to address their, their hearts' needs. It was in the wilderness that the Lord instructed his covenant people as he covenanted with them, telling them that because of who he was and what he had done, he would be, he was their God, and they would be his people. 
And he called them in the wilderness. He persuaded them that they were to live for him. And friend, the question that comes to us this morning is, has the Lord allured you? Has he enticed you? Has he persuaded you to follow him, to come after him, to leave the sin and misery of that you were in bondage to? Has he brought you into the wilderness? Has he delivered you from sin and misery? Has he drawn you into the wilderness so that he could there demonstrate to you in a greater way who he is and what he was doing and is doing for one like yourself? Promising to be your God, despite who you once were and so often as you examine your own hearts and lives, continue to be. But not only does the Lord just bring them into the wilderness, but as he brings them into the wilderness, he speaks comfortably to them. He addresses their heart, persuading them of the hope and of the comfort that they as the people of God can have in Christ Jesus. And these words of comfort that we, that we find, we find in our passage highlight what God is and continuing has done and is continuing to do for his people. As we read following verse 14 in verses 15 through 18, we read of three things that the Lord is going to speak into, into the lies, to words of comfort. In the first place, these words of comfort speak to the hope and to the restoration of hope that the people of God can have in place of or instead of judgment. Verse 15, I will give her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. Now to understand this phrase, particularly this last part, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope, we need to go back to the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel and as they were to enter in as they were about to enter into the land of Canaan the promised land children you will remember that as Israel traveled through the wilderness the Lord had promised that he would bring them into the land of promise and you will remember how they came to the border the border of the land and they there was this large city of Jericho And the Lord delivered that massive city into the hands of Israel in a a major and tremendous victory. We remember how the Lord said, you may not take of anything from this victory and keep it for yourselves, but the spoils of this victory were to be dedicated to the Lord. And you will remember how at that time there was a man named Achan, who took and hid something that would belong to the Lord. And then they went up to battle against Ai. And they were soundly defeated, a much smaller city. And it was after this battle that the sin of Achan came to the forefront. And Achan was stoned to death for his sin. 
because he had taken what had belonged to the Lord. And the valley where he was stoned was in the valley of Achor. This is a name that spoke of God's judgment against sin. But now in our verse, the Lord says the valley of Achor would be turned into a door of hope. From judgment to hope. To the hope of restoration. The Lord was not wooing his people into the wilderness to to judge them and condemn them, but he was wooing them to bring them into the promised land to offer them hope and restoration that would come from him. And friend, this is only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, because it was he who bore the judgment. It was he who bore the punishment against our sins that we deserved to come upon us in the valley of Achor. And it was because he came and bore that judgment that there was a door that was opened, a door of hope. Uh, a possibility for sinners like you and I to come back into relationship with Him. Friend, have you seen that Jesus bore the judgment that you and I deserved and because of Jesus' finished suffering and death on the cross and His resurrection, that there's a door that's wide open for you to come in through to Him. And that's what our second, the second words of comfort speak to, that there's a hope of a restored relationship with the Lord. In verse 16, the Lord says to those whom he is wooing, alluring to himself, he says, and it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishai. And the translators of the King James didn't didn't translate this word Ishai into English, and it literally means, and thou shalt call me my husband, and thou shalt no more, or call me no more Baalai, which is translated my master. Our covenant God not only redeems from sin, not only opens up a door of hope, But he restores his people into intimate relationship with himself. He does not want us to see him as a slavish taskmaster that the gods of this world are. But he wants us to see him as my husband. The one who loves me and desires an intimate relationship, a personal relationship a relationship that is rooted in his covenant, mercy, and love. So what, what is your relationship with the Lord right now? Is it that of, you call him Belai, a master? Or is he your husband? Do you delight to commune with him? Or do you have a fear of him, a slavish fear? Friend, if you love him and know something of what it means to be wooed by him, he calls you to next Sunday morning to come and, come and dine with him, to commune with him, 
to have intimate fellowship with him in his supper. Finally, the Lord comes with a third word of comfort, a word of comfort that speaks to a coming provision of rest and safety. We read these, this in verses 17 and 18, 18 in particular. And actually at the beginning of verse 15, I will give her vineyards. And then in verse 18, we read of how the people of God that come to him that are wooed by the Lord will have protection in times of rest as the Lord covenants with even the creation and brings wars to an end. And causes the people of God to lie down safely. This reminds me of Psalm 23 where David confesses that the Lord will prepare a table before him in the presence of his enemies. Or reminds me of Psalm 46 where at the end of that psalm where the Lord calls us to stop and consider his wonderful works, and he says, be still and know that I am God. And then he, we have this description of how the spears are being broken, and are being broken, the, the chariots are being put away because there is peace, because of what the Lord has done. And dear child of God, we pray that as next Lord's Day, We see it as a day where the Lord gives us a time of reprieve from the warfare that we face on a a daily basis. A time where he calls us to come and be refreshed, to rest. He reminds us that in the Lord's Supper that there is a day coming when this warfare will be done away with, the warfare of this life. When the bow and the sword will be broken and the battle will be done. But maybe someone says, well, how, how do I know this will be true for me? How do, how do I know that this prospect of restoration is certain and true? Why can it be so certain? Well, it's because the Lord betrothed to himself a people. Not only does the Lord allure his dear people, speaking words of comfort to them, words of hope, but he comes to them and guarantees it when he says to his people, I will betroth thee unto me. Three times in verses 19 and 20, the Lord comes with this phrase, I will betroth thee unto me. Three times he echoes this beautiful promise. The repetition itself speaks of the certainty of, speaks to the certainty of the Lord's promise of restoration. I will. In the repetition, we see the heart of God being manifested to us. I will betroth you unto me. In biblical times, a a betrothal, or we would refer to it more of as as an engagement, refers to a, a proposal or an agreement for marriage that was reached between two families. 
exchanges were made. There was a, a commitment being made by the, the husband's family and the wife's family. And the marriage was guaranteed. It would soon be physically uh, consummated. In a sense, as the Lord says and comes, I will betroth you unto me. In a sense, he's saying, I promise. I promise to do everything necessary to ensure the guarantee of bringing a people like yourselves, a sinful, adulterating people, back into relationship with me so that you will be my people. And I will be your God. The Lord promises, guarantees. And in this sense, unlike a, a typical betrothal agreement, which would have two parts, two aspects of people agreeing to something, here the Lord says, I will do it all. This agreement, this betrothal has everything to do with who our God is. He initiates it. I will. He sets the terms of the agreement as we're going to consider in verses 19 and 20. And he fulfills those terms on our behalf because we cannot and we won't fulfill them. The Lord does everything. He guarantees that this marriage will succeed. Whereas he echoes his desire to betroth his people, to marry his people, he follows it up with what he will do to ensure that this relationship will be successful, will be ultimately successful, and will never fail. And we read these in verses 19 and 20, and each time the Lord adds to it what he will do and the fruits of it. I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. first thing he promises is that this relationship will be permanent and faithful. If we consider these three promises of betrothal as, as a bookend, we have the first two, or the first and the last one kind of bookending the entire betrothal. And the first thing he says, this is going to be forever, and he says, I will do it in faithfulness. This marriage will be permanent and it will be constant. There will be a permanency and a constancy to this relationship because the Lord our God does not change. He is forever faithful. He will ensure that his marriage to his people will be an everlasting relationship. And even because we so often we are unfaithful, even after grace we find ourselves sinning time and again. And yet the Lord demonstrates his faithfulness to us even when we fail. 
And he comes to us again and again with his faithfulness. That's rooted in his, his gracious character. And it's this character that we see being amplified or magnified in the, in the middle of this betrothal, in the, in the second one. I will betroth thee in righteousness and in justice. I will betroth thee in loving kindnesses and mercies. He promises to reveal the full expanse of his glorious character to his beloved people. He says, I am a righteous and a just God, a holy God who cannot and will not overlook sin. But at the same time, I am a merciful and a compassionate God. I am a God who cannot, who cannot sweep your sins under the rug, but I will deal with them. I will deal with your adulterous hearts. I will deal with your sinful characters. I will deal with your sins. Because I'm a merciful and a compassionate God. A God who is slow to anger, who is long-suffering. And he forgives. But how? How? How how can God, who is holy and just on the one hand, show us on the other side of his character that he is a merciful and faithful and kind God? It's at the center, although not in the passage, what brings his righteousness and his justice and his mercy and compassion together? What allows these two to be reconciled so that they can be bestowed upon sinners like you and I? It's because of Christ. What appears to be this tension, an irreconcilable tension that is not a tension at all in the Lord's eyes. I will do this, he says. And I will do it in righteousness, and I will do it in justice, and I will do it in in loving kindness and in mercies. This apparent tension is beautifully addressed, beloved, in in the Lord Jesus Christ who, who came to the cross, who was the perfectly righteous God, who bore the wrath of God against our sins on the cross. And because He did that, and because He rose again from the dead, the Lord can bestow His tender mercies and His loving kindnesses to a people like ourselves. It's because Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, who is the ever-faithful One, who is the everlasting One, that He can come and woo us into a relationship with Him that will last forever. Friend, has the Lord allured you and brought you into a relationship with Him? Have you experienced His glorious love for sinners like, like yourself? Have you come to see that even as small as your faith is, that this tension is resolved in the Lord Jesus Christ? Has Jesus become precious for you? Do you desire to know Him more? Do you desire to love Him more? Even when your faith is 
seem so small and weak? And friend, if you can answer yes to those questions, and he calls you to come the next Lord's Day and, and commune with him, to dine with him, to marvel and wonder at what he has done for one like yourself. And what has he really done? He's, he's brought around an incredible reversal in, in our lives. When the Lord comes and allures us and betroths us, we see this tremendous reversal in who we are. And Hosea, in his message, describes that reversal by considering the names of his three children. The names themselves reflect who we are by nature. I don't know if you picked up on it in verse 23, the connection back to the names of the children. The first name, Jezreel, which means God scatters. And we read in verse 23, the beginning, I will sow her unto me in the earth. And children, how did they sow in those days? In the days, biblical times, before we had planters and various modernized farm equipment. They scattered the seed. The God who had scattered his people in judgment was now scattering her to be sown, to grow up, to be planted. As Psalm 1 describes, to be planted by the rivers of water. I will sow her unto me in the earth. I will scatter her as seed so that she will die to herself and she will bring forth abundant fruit so that she will be one who is fruitful and useful in my kingdom. Have you seen yourself as one who was scattered, drifting, going your own way, to now being one who is planted and rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. A friend, if, that, if you have, it's, it's because mercy has been shown unto you. Which leads us to the second name of Hosea's daughter. You remember Hosea's daughter's name was Lo-Ruhama, which means no mercy shown. By nature, we forfeited the right to have mercy shown to a people like us, but now the Lord comes in alluring and wooing and betrothing us to himself, and he shows us mercy. And we read this in verse 23, And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. Literally, I will have mercy on one who had been low Ruhama. The one undeserving of mercy, who is scattered in judgment, has had mercy shown to her. And in having mercy shown and being planted, rooted, the Lord now says, addressing and coming to the reversal of the last name, which means, or which is lo ami, which means not my people, the Lord now says, you are my people. Verse 23, I will say to them 
which were not my people, which were Loami, thou art my people. When the Lord comes with his mercy and his loving kindness, when he restores a sinner back into relationship with him, they are once more incorporated into the people of God. Dear child of God, the Lord says to you, you are my people. And the people of God will respond. They will respond to the grace and mercy that has been shown to them. And we see this response scattered throughout our passage. Verse 15, they will respond with singing for being brought into the wilderness. They will be, they will respond with having a sense of peace and they will be, they will lie down in safety. They will respond with a, a grasping an understanding of who the Lord is for them, and they will say, you shall know the Lord. And then they respond with confession, as we read at the end of this chapter, in response to what the Lord has done for them, in having sown her in the earth, and having mercy on her, and declaring her to be a people the people of God respond, Thou art my God. Is the Lord your God? Are you his people? Have you seen this great reversal in your life from one who is scattered, living on your own, to one who is now planted by the rivers of water? From one who had no mercy shown to you, to one who is now surrounded, encompassed with the mercies of God. From one who was not a people, to now the people of God. Friend, if this describes you, you are welcome to come and dine next week. But if you, friend, are still scattered... If you're still living on your own, for your, on your own account, still serving other gods, committing a spiritual adultery, you are to stay away from this table. My friend, I urge you to flee to the one who delights to woo sinners like yourself. To come to him. To hear his pleadings and to respond in faithful, in faith and obedience, repenting of your sins and clinging to Him. Flee to this glorious Redeemer, this beautiful Bridegroom of the Church, and find in Him mercy and hope. Amen. Lord, our God, we are thankful that Thou art a God who delights to show mercy, who offers us hope, the hope of restoration, who comes to us with Thy promises to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord Jesus, we thank Thee for being the one who has bridged the gap between our sins our inability to live a perfect and righteous life. 
our inability to pay the price that we must, that, that our sins have incurred and has provided a way back where thy mercy and thy grace, thy loving kindness can be freely bestowed upon such as we are. Lord, we pray that this, this week would be a week of examination in our hearts and lives. Do we know something? No, we are not perfect, but do we know something of what the Lord Jesus has done? Have we experienced his alluring power and his betrothing grace? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.